to the first season of the NFADB podcast, Pilot Project, constructed by the Volunteer Board of Directors of the National Family Association for Deaf Blind. This podcast will share the journeys and insights of families and educators and loved ones impacted by individuals with deaf blindness. We hope you find what we share to be beneficial, helpful, and inspiring. If you like us, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. This allows NFADB to continue its partnership with iTunes. Please go to the NFADB website at nfadb.org and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening. This is podcast number seven. Vivica Hartman lives in the Houston area with her family, and she has an active role in the deafblind community. She's passionate about providing a voice and advocacy for individuals who are deafblind and their families. She is the current president of the Deafblind Multi-Handicap Association of Texas and a board member of the Touch Base Center Dayhab in Houston, Texas. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with Vivica, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so happy to have you. Vivica, hey, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, I'm a mother of two. I have a daughter that's 23. She's graduated from Baylor, and I have a son that's 19, and he is he was born with Labor's congenital amaurosis, abbreviated LCA, which caused his deafness and blindness since birth. So he's a congenital deaf-blind um, person. We have been living in the same area, committed to the same school district, built a partnership with them. I think the challenge has just been we have not always known what to ask for and they have not always known what to offer. So we've just been learning through the years together. What, what school district, what state? We're in Houston, Texas in Spring Branch ISD and they've really worked well with us and we've truly treated it as a partnership. So initially, um, were there early intervention services or how early was that diagnosis? Well, it was uh, <laughs> so funny. When he was a baby, he had the nystagmus with the shaky eyes, and I got his um, vision checked. And when I got a report that he would need glasses, it was so upsetting. I sat and cried. And then we were, somebody suggested we get his hearing checked. So at nine months, we got his hearing checked. Um, and I almost didn't do it the night before I went up and I snapped, um, but my hand kind of swung in front of his face and so I think he flinched from the air because I thought he heard my snap. I almost didn't even take him. Uh, so I almost missed the fact that he was deaf when he was a baby, but then we found out he was deaf as well and uh, we certainly were on the journey to find out what was going on and I think we went to like 23 different doctors trying to find out what the diagnosis, what the cause was, how could we treat it and when we got that consistent diagnosis from two different specialists um, of the LCA we kind of stopped because that it was a very long journey and a lot of doctor's appointments not all in town some we drove to different ones visited them out of town and it was a pretty exhausting experience. What, what about school services when those began? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. So it was funny when I was told to register him with the school district, he was just a baby, so I didn't understand why. But I went ahead and I went to my local elementary and registered him, and, and then I got the call for ECI, 
early childhood intervention, and we had different a vision teacher and a uh, a VI and an um, auditory instructor and an AI assigned to us, and so I would I was working full time and go to work and rush home for those visits a couple times a week to try to be there and learn with them about everything they were suggesting. And so we did lots of little activities where you shine a flashlight on something shiny and try to teach his eyes to track what he could see or um, wearing the hearing aids and tracking it on a log of how much time a day he was wearing them, doing all those things before we entered the school system. And you were working full-time? I was. I have worked full-time the whole time, but my husband did stop working at a period to be home with him. We entered the PPCD the, for preschool for the special ed. We were fortunate enough to have our first principal there at the PPCD was the parent of a deafblind adult from the rubella wow. syndrome. You hit the lottery. I did hit the lottery. <laughs> it was pretty amazing. So we've had some pretty awesome supports from the beginning with our school district. And I think at the time when Christopher was three, I tried to reach out to outreach and they said, well, you really have to be in the school system for them to be involved. So I was kind of bummed I had to wait. <laughs> but once we were in PPCD, um, they did come out and visit the infant um, group at that time mm -hmm. from outreach, was able to come out and kind of guide us. And they gave us the documentation of the intervener. So I was able to use that and highlight it and share that with the administrative staff of the school district that this is this is what Christopher's going to need. So we ha we got an intervener, a person assigned. It was a paraprofessional assigned to be his intervener. She was a deaf person, which was great because she was fluid in sign. Um, so I think that she then just had to learn about the deafness, and the teacher had to learn about his deaf blindness. And so what was that like, being a being a parent new to this, and then also knowing that educators were... So how did you build your resources and get your network of support? Well, I'm pretty resourceful when I'm desperate. <laughs> so I just started reaching out, searching the internet because not as many things were available. Uh, did uh, searches. I found the Deafblind Multi-Handicap Association of Texas, DBMAT. Called the president at the time at home and talked it out with her. I can even still picture where I was sitting when I was talking to her for the first time as Pat McCollum, who started DBMAT. From her, realized that I needed to reach out to, um, to some others, like, like the TSBVI's outreach, DeafBlind Outreach, and then working with our school district, I, I think early on I just knew that I had to work with them because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be angry at them for not knowing because I didn't know either so that was really hard I usually like doing my research and understanding everything I work on and, and when I know something thoroughly I'm comfortable with it and I was having trouble finding that information so I didn't ever want to blame someone else for not knowing it if I couldn't get it and, and have it so I just really tried to partner with them and say let's do this together let's figure this out and I remember the first time that I was uh, kind of in that advocacy role about what my experience as a parent was. I was invited to another school district's event for because they had the deaf ed community. My school district didn't have deaf ed program in the district um, that was very big or anything because our school district's actually a smaller school district within the Houston area. 
Um, so I got invited to this other school district's, a larger school district's um, deaf ed family evening and met the principal or superintendent of their district. And I was just explaining that what's weird to me as a parent, the realization that for all the other regular ed children, there's a system in place so that when they enter the school district, they're ready for them. So they come, they walk in those stairs the first day and it's ready. But that wasn't there for us. That wasn't there for Christopher. We had to say, hey, here we are. What do you know? What do we know? Well, let's start this journey and figuring it out. And I think that's the part that I wish was different. The thing that I wish most was different, that the system was ready for him. Because he sat and waited while we all did our research and learned. And during that time, he just sat idle. He developed frustrations from sitting around doing nothing. And then we had to untrain him from those bad behaviors. And it really isn't his fault that we didn't know it, that the school district wasn't prepared, but yet, he is the one that pays the price. I hate that. Time is of the essence because they just true. sit there idle. Intervene early. Uh, yeah. Well, and, you know, 19 years ago, we didn't, we didn't know that. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't all this, the voice and support and the network. And the, so, so as, it, as the system has evolved and, it, like, you just, out of that passion of helping Christopher, you've immersed yourself in, into the deaf-blind community. So Absolutely. How has that helped you? It's easier for me to advocate for others, I think, for some reason. Or when I do, feel like I'm doing it for the greater good, not just for my own selfish need, it's easier. So um, I find that if I'm able to do it, not only for my child, but for all the other children yet to come, it gives me more meaning, more drive to be able to make a difference because everything that I've advocated for, or tried to instill or create, it always takes time for it to get going. So I know he's not gonna be the one directly to benefit from it. Yeah. But at least that path has been paved so that the next five-year-old that comes along, there's something. They're not starting from square one of, oh, hey, what is deaf blindness? That's that's a big motivator for me. Yeah, you, you've directed those frustration in a, in a very good way. Forward, P- yeah. push it forward, or yeah. pay it forward. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, pay it, push it. <laughs> pay it, push it's pretty <laughs> much been the way. Anyway, anyway if you yeah. get there, I, I think it's a good thing. So in that, like, uh, you know, for, because I, I can see that emotion that a lot of new new parents and a lot of just a lot of parents are holding that. I appreciate you sharing it. I think that there's a lot of emotion for you as a parent. And I'd have to say that on the spot I could just cry about it because it's just so upsetting to think about what he's missing out on. Yeah. But you have to get past that and say, what can I create for him to experience? And so maybe he likes swimming and the neighborhood pool is closed throughout the year but only open in the summer. So maybe you should just go ahead and bite the bullet and 
take a loan and put a pool in your backyard so your child who can't experience everything else, they can at least do that year-round. Little things like that is what can you create. IEPs then became a lot of, a shift of gears there that, that made me think about that creation of where that structure comes from educationally. So what would you say about gearing towards preparing for IEP meeting or transition planning? Let, let's, let's tackle you know, I think the thing that has been helpful for us throughout the years with the IEP team and with planning is well, we learned from a few experiences where we were not as involved because the school district wanted to do it their way. They wanted to try because they really truly thought they were making the right choice. But then at the end of the year, they brought bring us in and we'd feel things didn't go well and and didn't want to be on the outs ever again. So we learned kind of during the elementary years, it's really better if we meet every six weeks to talk about what's going well. What are you doing at school that we could do at home so we could reinforce the same ideas, methods, communication. Mm -hmm. And that stuck because it worked. It created successes because we could be doing at home the same things or we could do videotapes you know, for us 19 years ago or 10, 15 years ago, it was video, it was the big video recorders. And then they went to the little, re the little recorders. And so I would send the whole recorder up to the school. I could send them videos of him being successful at home and they'd be surprised. I can not even believe, I think it was in middle school, I sent a video of him eating with a fork and they didn't even know he could. So um, by having those routine meetings, we could talk about what successes are happening so that we could create more constructive experiences for him in the school system as well. So I think that also allowed us to be better prepared to communicate through the IEP process. Mm -hmm. We've also always um, advocated for the school districts to bring out the deafblind outreach team at least twice a year and then stay com in communication with them throughout the year so that they could collaborate about challenging experiences. I think that has really helped us be better prepared to make effective planning uh, decisions for the IEP experience. And that's been throughout Christopher's life. We, in middle school it started, and in high school it's continued, that we do webinars, like a, our video conferencing oh. for our team meetings every six weeks. Yeah. The outreach team joins us. From Austin, they join us in Houston through video conferencing. Yeah, that's wonderful. It keeps the discussion and the relationship alive for the team. Mm -hmm. Christopher, uh, um, how's his voice portrayed in, in those meetings? Do you believe? He's actually not in the meeting usually. He has been in some, but he will be doing his own activity or something. And so, Is it the videos that you, you think kind of share his perspective? or? I think it keeps the team in correspondence with the team, the local team in Houston, in correspondence with the deafblind specialists so that they can think about things from the deafblind perspective. Mm -hmm. So I think that's key because if you only have one deafblind individual in your area, it's hard to be experienced enough to know that perspective. Yeah, I love, I love that approach, Vivica, because a lot of times, a lot of educators only see the IEP. And so then, 
especially you know especially at the beginning of the year so there's there's that transition from the printed paper to mm-hmm. hey, this is this is life with with, with my son and, and get to know Christopher so so yeah I love that perspective of the video and mm-hmm. that's so that's a, that's a great it's a great way for new young parents who are starting out with uh, right the videotaping is a great opportunity to share successes and build on them yeah uh, uh, it's almost like a portfolio mm-hmm. uh, you know going through that so what advice would would you have for a parent uh, a new parent new parent oh there's so much to say <laughs> uh, I do like something that I heard recently which I thought was really a great uh, advice point of advice is Identify a method of communication and stick with it. I mean, if it's not working, obviously, you've got to redirect, but it took us a long time to figure that method out, and it wasn't until we found exposure to people that were successful because there was not a lot of awareness or advertising about successful deafblind people when we were young. But today, there is a lot more out there. You can be able to see videos or Google deafblind individuals and see how they're successful with their communication. Because we didn't really hear about the intervener as a successful role in their communication styles and that there was a college program until Christopher was like nine. So immediately I started calling the college program out of Canada, the George Brown Center, and spoke with Betty Jean for the first time when Christopher was nine and so when he was 10 that summer, we got our first trained intervener from the Canadian program and she was awesome and amazing and built a strong bond with Christopher and he was expressively signing by the end of that summer. And that was pretty much our first opportunity to be with a well-trained intervener, which created the opportunity for Christopher to have consistent delivery of communication Mm -hmm. and the consistent expectation of communicating back. So this is um, one of those you know it when you see it moments. But how? What sticks out in your mind as a characteristic of a of a good intervener and an effective, successful intervener or FSP? I think it depends on the way that they interact with the individual that's deafblind, and you can't really go off that first meeting because it takes time for them to get familiar with each other. So uh, that was something we had to kind of remind grandma because she was home with them that it's not going to happen the first day or the second day. You have to give it some time for the relationship to build, for the trust to be established. And I think the observation, because this intervener lived in our home, so I got to experience the observation on a daily basis. Every evening we had dinner. She always made certain he knew she was there and available without pushing him. And by the end of that summer, he was just constantly trying to get her attention, to talk with her, to communicate and interact. So you just have to allow that trust and bond to be established, and then it can just blossom. Yeah, wow. So I'm thinking about funding. Is there state funding or federal funding? In the state of Texas, we have the Medicaid waivers, which allows you to enlist and get on a waiting list, depending on there are multiple waivers you can um, put your name on, and then when your turn comes up, you can identify if it's the right fit for you. 
and we have a few waivers in Texas that do help the uh, deafblind individuals. And we started off on one and switched when we came up on the other one. And then um, we are now on the DBMD Medicaid waiver, which provides us intervener services, both um, in the community, so we have it at home, and then we also have the respite or habilitation services available to us as well. This enables us to have funding because Christopher cannot go to regular daycares and it allows us to keep working. So it kind of, it's good for the community, creates jobs, allows parents to keep working, allows a fulfilling experience for the deafblind individual. As long as you can find a trained person or a person to fill that role that you can train. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, a key. So, so with a new parent or someone wanting to get on those programs, I know that it's, it's not consistent state by state, but... I have the number if you want it. Yeah, you can definitely. Well, you could say it, and then we'll also put it in our transcripts. Okay, it's the uh, interest list for Texas. Interest list. For interest Texas? list. Mm-hmm. Health and Human Services Medicaid waiver interest list. The number is one eight seven seven four three eight five six five eight. And I can send that to you as well. There's an alternative number here, but I believe it, they just redirect you to the same. So outside of Texas, do you, what do you recommend for a, who, who should a parent contact to see if their state has that? I think you should first, your first point of contact for any person in any state is the DeafBlind Outreach contact, whoever that may be. Mm-hmm. And I think if you did a Google search for DeafBlind Family um, Outreach Consultants, there's probably a list available. Uh, you could certainly call the ones in Texas or in any state, and they'll redirect you to the right person in your local state. Oh, good. So every every state has a deafblind outreach that's funded federally. It flows through different methods in different states. Here in Texas, it flows through the Texas Education Agency, mm-hmm. which is a function that oversees the, the school systems, the individual independent school districts, and ours so the funding flows through TEA, but the staff is housed at Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Yeah. And so they would be a, a, a contact. You could contact your, your local state's uh, blind and visually impaired state schools or deaf schools for the, for the state, and they should be able to redirect you. So, so in that, as we're looking about community, Christopher's 19. Mm-hmm. And so what are the thoughts on that? transition from school to community or when did when did he first start transition planning you know it's funny about transition planning I have um, because we're so good about working with the school districts in the beginning that none of us knew what we were doing I have not wanted to start transition planning for the longest time we are 19 and I will now accept transition planning (laughs) they wanted to start it with us like at the age of 13 just said but at the age of 10 is when we figured it out what communication method we would use. So how can you tell me just a few years later we have to start preparing for leaving when Mm -hmm. nobody could identify and determine that what method of communication we were going to have. So if we just started at 10, then let's pretend his education started at that point in time. So from that point in time forward, now we're nine years in 
attachment to this tactile signing and symbols, I'll, I'm ready to I'm ready to discuss transition planning. <laughs> I have been um, actually without officially accepting transition planning. I have been visiting other alternatives in the greater Houston area, mm-hmm. other day have programs, and I've had um, the high school person wanted to was good about encouraging us to just go and visit them from when he entered this high school level. So we went and we've observed many places and had some other people with us that were like our case manager Mm -hmm. because we've had the waiver services even though Christopher's in school because it helps us in the summer and it does help with funding for after school programming which a public program was never really available. We had to create it in our home. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's seems to be a common trend of you have to create it yourself well so with this transition planning as an adult that's basically been our resolution there is a program that is similar to what we want for Christopher it's established for lifelong learning in a school type environment Mm -hmm. so that looked really good to us and I think what we've done is taken bits and pieces from all the different places we've seen and the training that we've done for the past 19 years <laughs> and attending all of these conferences. And uh, we've created this idea of, of course, partnering with others. We have some people that are specialists in the field that have partnered with us and another family who was in the stage of transition planning for their child graduating. So we've partnered a group of us together to establish this transition plan, which is a day hab for adults, deafblind people people that are deafblind to go to on a daily basis as an adult and it will continue the education of their communication development, their life skills development, their ability to have an activity they can do regularly, routinely, go out into the community to either sell or share things that they make as well as just going to the local grocery store, building relationships within their community, attending different things in the area. That's an awesome program, and I, I could see that that took a lot of advocating on your part to make that happen. And um, I, I hear you saying, "Be a voice in that IEP meeting." Oh yeah. So that that's was that a difficult thing for you to do to speak up in those education meetings or initially or what? Tell me about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I think in the beginning you don't realize what you're supposed to ask for. And then you go through phases where you're emotional and you just are really having trouble hearing everything that they tell you. So one of the things that I think has helped us at different times is to have an advocate with us, not really as anyone to fight, not in that way, but to help us stay focused and that we brought to the meeting so that we knew they were there for our best interest, not just the school district. Not that I felt we were opposing parties in any way. I just I just knew that I could lose sight of what the point was because I would be emotional. Yeah, almost like a facilitator. Uh, yes, a yeah. facilitator would be good. And she had the experience, so like the DARS, uh-huh. a, a person would come to our ARD meetings every now and then, also because I wanted to keep them informed of who Christopher was and so that we kept that relationship alive because they were supposed to be there for us in adulthood. Mm-hmm. And but I found that it was helpful because they knew the legal ease. They also knew what other people were having. So they were there to present those points 
without my having to stay completely unemotional. And um, that, that was helpful at times. Vivica, one of the things that we talked about before that I really, I want you to talk and share more about that is uh, the pre-preparation for the IEP. Um, talk about a little bit of, of that communication with the educators in that. Well, it's kind of like, um, as I'm a manager in my work world, where I, the, my paying job, and I, I believe nobody should ever be surprised by something they hear in a review. So similar idea is it should never be a surprise because we've experienced that where we did walk into an ARD meeting and we're completely floored because of their recommendations. Mm -hmm. And it was a year in which they had asked for us to, to allow them the opportunity to try it their way. What well, never will let that happen again. <laughs> so uh, it was just too emotional and too, it built barriers and I won't, I don't like that. Yeah. Um, so we've established the meetings, team meetings, every six weeks. And it's been successful for us. We've really pretty much done it since mid-elementary years mm -hmm. on. And what we do, I mean, I, as far as I'm concerned, there's no pre-planned agenda. I believe they've kind of formalized it into an agenda these days. We're in high school now. And that's to make certain they can cover some things before we get out the door, because yeah. it's easy to get off base. Um, but it's in those meetings when we could discuss what's working well at home, what's working well at school, how could we develop any additional planning around those successes, and that's where we, <laughs> we'd we have discussions and I'd say, oh, he can do that, and they'd be shocked. And so I said, well, let me get you a video. <laughs> so that the whole videos kind of came up in natural discussion about, well, yes, I know he can do that. And so once they saw a video of him doing it, then they raised their expectations. Uh -huh. And I think that that may be what this kind of really developed into yeah. is don't lower the expectations because he can do. Yeah. He can be successful. So you, you kind of saw some of those typical teenager behaviors come out with, with him, huh? Yes, absolutely. He does have those. He's very typical in his development in a lot of ways. So uh, as far as, um, what do you think about if you could speak to a room full of individuals, and which I know you've done, and advocate for individuals with deaf blindness, what would be the most important piece of information you'd want to share? I think I've come to perceive life for a deafblind adult in a different manner from some recent experiences. And, um, discussions as we're going through this transition planning and that adulthood is really about what is going to make that deafblind individual happy on a daily basis and self-motivated so I think that that's the future picture to keep in your in your forefront today that what you're planning toward is what is going to make life enjoyable for them so do they need to learn how to put a peg in a hole eh, I don't know it's for you to decide do they um, need to learn some communication so they have a good foundation for what that experience will be lifelong? Most likely. I do think a lot of it ends up being about communication, and, and I think that that's the primary focus, and to advocate for immersion in an appropriate communication system while they're in their education years. So has your definition of success changed? Absolutely. <laughs> there was a discussion about normal 
I do know as a new parent, when I had Christopher as a baby, I had lots of different perceptions of what's normal and oh, this is not normal. And I love that per, uh, perspective of, well, this is the new normal, so let's just get used to it and move on. <laughs> You know, that shifts, freedom. Yeah, that yes. shift of, of your mindset. What other what other things have have shifted that mindset for you to you know relax as a parent? You know, there was a meeting that we had with the TSBVI's transition planning, our transition department. The principal of the transition program at TSBVI expressed something to me recently, which I thought was an eye-opener and definitely challenged my brain to think differently. I have always thought it's my role and responsibility as Christopher's mom to get him up, showered, and dressed and ready for the day, every day. So I'll go to work late, no matter what it takes to get Christopher up and out the door. And um, I just expect that to be the way it is forever. And the principal asked me if it had to be me, but yes, right because that's my role as his mother and he said but when he's an adult does it have to be you does every adult person have their parent shower them and get them ready i just had to stop and think oh you mean he might not want me to be that person forever i did i just it was a different are you just letting me off the hook or is it just Maybe he, it will make him happier if he's not being treated like a child every day of his entire life. <laughs> and that was, a, it was, a, it was a, a challenge. And so I've, I'm rethinking that plan. Like those aha moments. Just uh-huh. Just kind of hit sometimes. You know, it's like, Ooh. Well, because he will get himself up and dressed because he wants to get up and get going. So maybe we shower in the evening and wash his hair, and then if he wants to shower off in the morning, no big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll still get himself dressed and ready. Yeah. And maybe doesn't have to be me. It's a new idea. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, what's your um, current passion? What, what are you driving towards now? What's... Well, I think because we're kind of in the transition planning, our passion has been to create an environment that's fully supportive of both the deafblind people as well as the the people that support them. So we have been working hard to establish a day habilitation placement, uh, day hab for deafblind adults. Mm -hmm. And that's been pretty much the driver for this past period of time. And I think other than that, my passion, as it has been for a while, is to do all I can to help the deafblind community because I think they just need more voices because there's such a low incidence disability with a smaller population than many others. Yeah, yeah. I, I thank you very much for being a voice for the deafblind community. Uh, well, thank very, you. Very appreciative. Um, if someone wanted to um, contact you or some of the organizations that you're involved in, could you? give a little bit more information about that? Sure. I have an email address. Well, we also, I'm on two boards that are for the deafblind community. One is um, DBMAT, and we have a website that's www.dbmat-tx.org. And then we, I'm also for the, we have a website for the DAYHAB in Houston that is for adults who are deafblind, and that is www.dbmat.org. 
touchbasecenter.org. Thank you. Those will also be in the transcript notes. So thank you for today. Thank you for taking the time out of the uh, party going on outside. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. Mm-hmm.